Welcome to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm your host, certified religious transition and trauma recovery coach, Terry Hales. I help people step out of the shadows of religious fear and shame and embrace their authentic selves with love and empathy. If you're ready to throw off the shackles of learned binary thinking and explore a more nuanced approach to life, this is your playground. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Emancipate Your Mind podcast. I'm Terry Hales, and today I'm joined again with Kevin Hales. He's a licensed professional counselor. He's my husband, the father of my kids, uh, my over-dinner conversationalist, the person I unravel the cosmos and psychology and religion and all of those things with. And today, I'm really excited. We're going to be tackling the topic of conflict when one partner in a relationship leaves the faith. So there were a couple of things that we've been talking about over the past week, and we wanted to bring those to the podcast today. And so I'm excited to see what comes up in our conversation. It's always fun when we converse on the podcast because we have a general idea of where we're headed, but always new things come up. I learn new things, and we just have some great conversations, kind of like everyday real life around here. So welcome to our conversation and welcome to the podcast, Kevin. Thank you. Are you going to threaten to throat punch me again today? (laughs) I'm not going to threaten to throat punch you again today. Come on. For the record, neither of us have throat punched the other person ever, but it's, it's, it makes me laugh to picture you doing that. (laughs) (laughs) We were joking with friends when we were playing board games. We had a couple of friends over for board games this past weekend. Kevin was telling them about how I threatened to throat punch him or told told everyone that I wanted to throat punch him sometimes back in the early days of our marriage. And uh, then for the rest of the night, we joked about how one of us would wake up with a sore throat or with like sore kidneys or something like that. So it's a running joke around here now that I'm this violent person that will like hurt you in your sleep if if you get on my wrong side. So no, no throat punching happening here today. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so, so back to the you know, obviously last time we we talked about that negative cycle, that conflict cycle that, you know, we, we fall into. And we talked about wanting to, I guess, address maybe some of the the specifics of what that might look like and how that might play out in mm-hmm. a in a relationship more, I guess, specific to the audience that we're talking to. You know, a lot of people might be in a mixed faith marriage at this point or a scenario where there's extra conflict or, or things to address, uh, because, you know, of, of one's religious beliefs or lack thereof. Yeah. Well, and this happens to whether one of you has left and the other one has stayed, whether one of you is questioning, but you're both technically still in the religion. This happens even if you move from one religion to another religion. And I even see this happen with my clients when both have left their religion And they realize that their marriage and the way that they did things was built on certain rules. And now they're trying to reestablish rules for their new lifestyle. There can be a lot of conflict sometimes about what's right, what's wrong, what's acceptable, what's good for the kids, what's good for our marriage, what feels like love. 
And so we kind of wanted to address a lot of those things that go with a faith transition. There are some differences if you get together and both of you are different religions in the very beginning. That's part of your marriage contract is you're Jewish and I'm Christian, or you have already kind of made a contract of how you're going to handle holidays, how you're going to handle uh, religious traditions, raising your kids. If you're listening to this and you're considering marriage with someone of an opposite faith, definitely get some premarital counseling to work through some of those things. It'll help you avoid a lot of the pitfalls that do come with having mixed faith marriages. But today in particular, we're talking about when you go through a faith transition after already committing to a relationship and some of those issues that come up in the relationship when one person or both go through faith transition. Yep. So. Yeah. Well, and and maybe maybe we'll start with, you know, last time we we kind of threw a couple of ground rules out there. <clears throat> I think, you know, we can we can start with a couple of those here. I think first and foremost, we have to address the topic of change. Mm-hmm. Change I would say generally speaking is maybe not something most of us like or seek or are comfortable with because it usually means getting out of our comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And yet change is, a, is inevitable. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's part of the growth process. It's part of just growing and, and, and evolving and, and progressing as, as a human being. And, and so I think we have to, to normalize that, that process, especially when we look at it through the lens of what, most of us might define as strength. Mm -hmm. So for example, when it comes to religion and politics in particular, there's this myth that to be unchanging, to be solid, to be grounded, to never change your opinion or your mind or or to doubt, uh, those are seen as strength. And the reality is those that is not strength. That is stubbornness that is closed-mindedness that is you know um an unwillingness to to change and to grow and to morph um that in other words in order to grow and progress we have to be willing to embrace knowledge and information wherever it may come from and consider it right research it try it on you know and and see if it fits for you and that requires an open mind and an ability to to consider some of those those concepts. Whereas, again, that political, you know, like somebody in politics who who changes their mind on something might be labeled a flip flopper. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody in religion who who changes their mind or or just thinks differently than the religion they're part of, you know, can be you know an apostate. They can be a rebel. They can be. Uh, you know, a slothful servant, right? Yeah. Right. In Mormonism, you know, we used to call them Jack Mormons. And so, anyways, it, whatever the title or the label may be, um, generally speaking, in those arenas, that has been seen as weakness if you mm-hmm. stray from the approved dialogue and, and set of beliefs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's and I think that's an important principle to emphasize. It's okay to change your mind. It's okay to change your views on certain things that is not weakness that is that is growing that is change that's maturity right, <clears throat> right. and yeah. and 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 of course on this topic of change and relationships 
I shared with you that, that quote, um, I read it online some time ago. I don't remember who it was, but, but basically the quote is, is something along the lines of each of us gets married three different times in our life. And sometimes it's to the same person. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to the listeners that are, that are listening to that right now, I'd encourage you to sit with that just for a second. It, it really impacted me. And I think it probably impacts most people when they hear that probably in different ways, but just for the sake of repetition, I'll I'll say it one more time. Each of us gets married three different times in our life. And sometimes it's to the same person. That quote hit me whenever you brought it home, because I've changed significantly from when we got married. Mm -hmm. I am not even close to the same person that I was when I was 20. Yeah, We hit 20 years this past year of marriage. And yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely not the same people. Yeah. The person I was, the person you were, we we're completely different people and we've grown together, but it, it's interesting because if I were still trying to be that, that 20 year old person, I wouldn't be a good fit for who you are now Mm-mm. and vice versa. And sometimes when people grow and they change, they end up not being a good fit. Mm-hmm. I feel like sometimes they both grow and evolve in like opposite ways sure. because of life circumstances and personality and just how they view things. So it's really, I think that's, that's really freeing actually to think about Mm -hmm. the fact that we're going to evolve and we're going to change. And I think that that's something that if we're expecting in marriage makes it more likely for us to stay together. Mm -hmm. I can't tell you how many couples I've heard that are like, I just want her to never change. I've married her and I just want her to stay the same and it's unrealistic or, well, it's usually the opposite with women. I'm marrying him and I want to change all these things. (laughs) And so, but I, it's so often men that I hear, like I'm I'm marrying her and I never want her to change. And that's just not how it works. Our bodies change, our, you know, our view of the world changes. Sometimes our values change, our beliefs change. You know, sometimes we go through life altering events that can change even our personalities to a certain extent. And so if we're expecting change, we don't feel robbed, I think, so much whenever people change. We don't feel like we're being betrayed or Mm -hmm. that it was false advertising. I've heard that before. Mm -hmm. We're expecting it and it's easier to roll with it. So Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the big reasons we're bringing up this idea of change is when we're expecting it, you have a better chance of staying together if that's what you want to do. And if you get to a place where you realize this isn't going to work, there's less, I think there's less shame in that Yeah, because you understand that we evolve as people and you guys are completely different people than you were when you got married. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, yeah, like you said, it, I think it takes away some of that shame because you're anticipating and expecting that this is just part of the natural course of life's events and, you know, what comes with it. It's not, like you said, it's not as shocking. It's not as surprising. And, and, and you'll sometimes see examples of that, right? I, I think I think we, we probably see that a lot in religious people where we've grown up in a very restrictive environment, some obviously more than others, but we have been told most, if not all of our lives, how to live. Mm-hmm. This is the quote unquote right way to live, to believe, to think, to speak, to act. And what happens is a lot of us have often feel like we've been tr- pretending our whole life, mm-hmm. that we've been playing a, a part or a role 
And, and that's, that's where that, that term midlife crisis comes from. Yep. Right? Because we, we, we reach that roughly midlife point, you know, thirties, forties, fifties, somewhere in that, that time frame, And, and I think we start to realize, crap, my life is roughly halfway over. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we sometimes take a step back and go, is this where I want to be? Is this the career I want to be doing? Is this the role I want to be filling? Is this how I want to live the rest of my life? Am I even happy right now? Mm-hmm. Am I happy in this marriage? Am I happy in this religion? Am I happy doing all the things that I'm quote unquote supposed to be doing? And that's why you'll see people go through a midlife crisis. You'll see people drastically change sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, and you'll see that sometimes. You'll see people go, whoa, I don't even recognize this person anymore. Yep. This isn't who I married or this isn't the person I, I knew my whole life. And 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 it can be really, I guess, shocking to, to people who thought they knew who this person was. But imagine how much shocking it is for the person going through it. Yeah. In some respects, I think that's part of why you you see that drastic change is because that person is trying to maybe rediscover who they are and what they believe and what they want to do with the rest of their life. Absolutely. Well, and I'm so glad that you brought that up. I had a client once that said, I got to that place in my life and thought, is this all there is? Mm. And am I willing to just accept that this is all there is? Or am I willing to fight and risk for more? Mm-hmm. And I, I love how she went on further to say, you know, in my 20s, it was all about trying to, to please others. I was trying to get validation. I was trying to get love and acceptance. My 30s were kind of the awakening. And it's funny because this really parallels my own life. She said my 40s were finally where I decided this is me and I'm I'm dedicated to finding myself and loving myself. And she said, and in my 50s, because she's in her 60s, she was like, in my 50s, I finally was able to be like, I don't give a flying F what you think. <laughs> she said, but it took it took that whole process of awakening and realizing I'm not happy. I've been living by other people's rules. Those rules aren't serving me. They're actually making me miserable. And I'm ready to do something about it. And she so wise, she actually was able to say there, you know, there are losses that come with awakening to your authentic self, but the gains are greater than the losses. Mm. Yeah. I credit her for this whole idea of there's always a death of some sort. You grieve anytime you open a new chapter, even if it's an exciting chapter, you're going to grieve. I remember graduating high school and going to college I had to grieve high school. Even though I was so excited to leave high school and go to college, I had to grieve living at home. I had to grieve the safety. I had to grieve my friends. I had to grieve my hometown um, to go to college, which was a positive step towards maturity. But there was grief leaving the old behind. And that happens anytime we change. Yeah, There's always grief, even if there's also excitement at the same time right. moving forward. Right, right. Yeah. And, and I think we can all attest to that looking back on 2020 and... And what a year of change that was for all of us to some extent, some more than others. But regardless, we were grieving the loss of our old normal, you mm-hmm. know, not being able to go to our favorite restaurant or concert or sports event or movie theater or whatever. All those things that we were able to do so freely and easily before uh, we haven't been able to. And so 
that's what a lot of us, I think, have been experiencing is a grief for what used to be. And, yeah. and kind of to your point, I think anytime there is, there is a grieving that we often go through and probably kind of a, a, a shame as well on, on certain things where mm. we feel a lot of shame regarding how I used to believe and how I used to look at the world, uh, especially in that religious context, because, you know, I've got, you know, I've got that t-shirt that says, I'm sorry for what I said when I was Mormon. And because, man, I was a real jerk at times and I was judgmental and condescending and arrogant and all these things. And, and I, I, I am sorry, you know, I, I, I mean, I clearly didn't know any better at the time, so I can give myself some grace and I can forgive myself for a lot of those things. But, but I think that's, that's part of that grieving process is dealing with the shame of, ugh, I can't believe I used to say that, or I used to believe that, or I used to think that, mm. but the reality is most of us really never knew any different. Yeah. Well, and I love the quote from Maya Angelou, where she says, um, you know, forgive yourself for not knowing what you didn't know before you learned it. And that has been a lifesaver for me to look back at myself who, I mean, I was the person that supported Prop 8. I campaigned for it. I donated to Mm -hmm. it. I talked to family members about it. I mean, it's funny. It's those same family members that are appalled that I'm talking about these things. And I'm like, wait, I'm the same person. I'm just talking about different issues. I've grown. I mean, we're really not shocked that I'm going public, are we? So it's it's interesting because I look back at that girl who, you know, had a gay best friend in high school who um, who loved that person. And I think of the things I said to him as he was coming out and he was scared and, you know, uncertain. And definitely I felt so much sorrow and so much shame for the things that I said and working through that. I'm realizing I really did do the best that I could have done with the information that I had and the understanding and maturity that I had. Working through that has actually allowed me empathy for other people who maybe are saying things to us in our situation that are unkind or are judgmental or come from that sense of certainty. And I have the answers for your life, Mm -hmm. not just for my life, but for everybody's lives. Having gone through that, knowing that I said really awful things sometimes but I intended them to be loving Mm -hmm. Um, and having forgiven myself allows me then to show empathy and kindness to those who are sometimes say really awful things from their sense of certainty and from their worldview, trying to be loving, Sure, like honestly worried that we're going to hell, honestly worried our kids are going to be delinquent, honestly worried you and I are going to get divorced and being able to understand they're doing the best they can with what they have because I've been able to forgive myself for doing that very same thing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's an important part to, I think, to emphasize here, especially, yeah, I mean, as we're ta- dealing with that topic of change and, and, and I guess that brings us maybe to the next ground rule when it comes to, you know, dealing with these topics is, is that agreement is not love. I, I think that's an important principle to emphasize. Agreement is not love. And why is that important? Well, especially when we're talking about a mixed faith, you know, marriage or relationship where maybe we used to believe the same thing and now we don't, that can feel very threatening to the relationship. It can feel very threatening to really both members of the the relationship, not just the one who continues to believe and the other one changes. It's It feels threatening to both of them because if we aren't on the same page with how we believe on certain subjects, 
that feels very threatening. Absolutely. Well, and especially I think when we have been taught about unity, so often in religion, we're taught that we, you know, we become one flesh, we become one person almost, Mm -hmm. which sort of denotes this idea that we'll agree on exactly how to raise the kids. Mm -hmm. We're going to agree on what we're supposed to do for date night and what we're going to have for dinner. But even more than that, what our gender roles are supposed to be in the division of labor and um, who's making the money and who's at home with the kids or how are we going to divide that? And then when our viewpoints change and we don't, we feel like two separate people in a union it does feel very uncertain when we don't have what you were saying, that roadmap of the religion saying, this is what we think. This is what we believe. This is how we act. This is how we vote. This is what we do. This is how you raise your kids. This is the program. I used to call it the roadmap. Mm-hmm. When we throw out the roadmap and we don't have someone keeping us one, if you will, then suddenly we have to realize, oh, wait, you're a separate human being and I'm a separate human being. And we see the world differently and we always have seen the world differently. We just, now we're having to deal with that in our thirties or forties or late twenties or our Mm sixties or our, you know, eighties, we're having to deal with that autonomy. And I imagine that feels just as uh, disorienting as it does to a two-year-old who suddenly realizes, wait, I am not my mother. I'm, I'm separate from her. I have, you know, I'm allowed to think independently. Same for our teenage years. That's why those are so disconcerting as we start Mm. realizing, oh, wait, like I can think independently of my parents. And we we go through what I call a second adolescence, I think, whenever we finally, when we transition from religion. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I guess, going back to that, that feeling that somebody not believing the same way as he or she used to religiously or spiritually can feel threatening. And, and what I find is that sometimes we are more married to the beliefs rather than the person themselves, mm-hmm. which is why it's important to emphasize that agreement is not love, that we can disagree on some pretty fundamental issues and still love each other immensely. Yes, there there it is easier, I think, to, you know, when we do see the world through the same lens and agree on a number of different issues, it does it does make it easier to operate on a day to day life. But but I would not say that that's a requirement for uh, a happy, loving marriage. We can we can disagree fundamentally on a number of issues. And I think part of what makes that possible is allowing again, having that open mind and allowing other people to believe whatever they want and that's okay right Mm -hmm. recognizing again i think that idea that truth is more relative than i think we sometimes want to believe or have been taught yeah right that 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 i mean what's the old song in in mormonism choose the right one of choices placed before you right it's just so black and white Mm -hmm. you know there's one right choice that we should always be making and truth is universal and truth is this, this, and that. Yeah. And, and always binary. Right. right. And in religion, truth is always binary. Right. It's either true or it's false. It's right or it's wrong. It's right. good or it's evil. Right. Yeah. And so, and so when we start to look at it through that, that lens of, of, well, this is my truth. This is my reality. This is how I believe. And you are welcome to believe whatever you want and whatever that is, you know, 
that's fine, you know, or maybe it's not right. Yeah. You know, and, and that's one of the things we have to work through, you know, cause, cause all, all of us are going to have deal breakers. All of us are going to have certain lines that we don't want crossed, you know, and, and, and we'll, we'll have to deal with those. We'll have to address those, mm-hmm. uh, especially if we're going through a, a transition. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially as we start to develop our own values and our own beliefs outside of religion, mm-hmm. because that's a necessary part of transitioning is, you know, you've released religion, you've left, and now you have to, as part of building your identity, figure out what do I value mm-hmm. as a person? What do I believe as a person? What are my new life rules? Like, mm-hmm. what is, what are my boundaries? What is okay with me and what is not okay with me? And that doesn't mean married partners will always come to the same conclusions. Nope. And so it's a matter of deciding, you know, what are the rule breakers? What are the boundaries? And you get to decide together, what do we do with these? How do we compromise? How do we, or do we compromise? Or do, is this the deal breaker that, that we don't continue together because we can't, we can't reconcile. And all of those are valid options. Sure. Yeah. Well, and, and that, I guess that brings us to the topic of divorce, Yeah. right? Or splitting up. Which I, I feel like we need to destigmatize that yeah. that topic because traditionally, especially once kids enter the picture, traditionally divorce has often been demonized and vilified and identified as always bad, right? I mean, you rarely if ever hear somebody talk about the positive aspects of, of divorce, and again, I think a lot of that has religious origins because we've often been taught that, you know, marriage is of God and having children is, you know, God wants you to have children or, or you know, whatever those, you know, those religious doctrines and dogmas are, we've internalized those. We've, they've been, become a part of our, our manual for living life. And so for somebody to take a step back and go, actually... Maybe divorce isn't always, you know, Mm -hmm. a bad thing. Maybe there is a lot of positive to divorce. And I would argue that's probably the case with most topics. There's almost always going to be pros and cons. Right. Right. Uh, Divorce isn't necessarily a good or a bad thing. It's just a valid option Mm -hmm. that we need to be able to talk about and put on the table. And, and you know, even if that's not your first choice, even if you don't want to get divorced, we still need to consider it. We still need to acknowledge that it is an option. And, and part of why I think that's important to emphasize is, is sometimes, again, going back to that fear, we, we tend to avoid the things we're scared of. And so if we've been taught our whole life or, or we just don't want to get divorced, right? I love this person. And even considering the idea of divorce is just scary and uncomfortable and yucky. Guess what? We still need to consider it. Because th- th- there's this principle, I don't even know what to call it. You know, maybe, maybe someone smarter than me, you know, knows what the terminology for it would be. But there's this principle that what we avoid, what we cover our eyes um, a- against will grow and become more and more powerful in our lives. And I always think of the Harry Potter books, right? I think most people are probably familiar with the Harry Potter storyline. But in the first couple of books and movies, uh, people are afraid to say Voldemort's name. Mm-hmm. Right. He who must not be named is how they refer to him. And in the process of doing that, 
what they're doing is creating more fear mm-hmm. around the topic of him. And, you know, in comes Harry Potter, who's, you know, just saying, yo, you mean Voldemort? You know, and he's just kind of throwing the name out there. And over time, you know, people, you know, become, I think, a little less scared, you know, to, to, to talk about him and to, to, well, ultimately, you know. Defeat him. Defeat him. And create a plan for conquering this scary thing. And so whatever those fears are in our lives, whatever we're scared of, divorce, you know, someone dying, whatever those fears and worries are, we have to be able to talk about them. We have to them. We have to be able to bring them out, shine the light on it so that we can identify what it is. And then we can decide what to do with it at that point. And, and I, I think divorce is, it falls in a similar category. Absolutely. It's so interesting because um, during my years of business coaching, you know, one of the things that people would bring up sometimes is I'm so afraid that I won't make any money and then we'll be penniless and then we'll go bankrupt and then we'll be homeless. And it would just like spiral, spiral, spiral into all of this fear. And so I would take them to their worst case scenario. I'm like, okay, consider that you become homeless. Like, let's consider that that's what happens. This doesn't work. You can't pay your bills. You go bankrupt. You become homeless. What then? Instead of avoiding it and pretending like, like, we can't even talk about that. That's too scary. I was like, let's go there. You're homeless now. You've lost your home. You've gone bankrupt. What are you going to do? And having a plan and understanding that even if I become homeless, okay, so I'll sleep on my friend's couch. I will work two jobs. You know, I'll work fast food if I have to. I'll create what I have to until I find a job that can support me. Just knowing you have a plan that I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to let myself be one of the people that that sleeps in the park for the rest of my life. I might be homeless for a little bit, but this is who I would call. This is what I would do. This is the job I would apply for. These are, you know, these are the things I would do to take care of myself, my kids, my whatever. Suddenly, it's not as scary because you have a plan to get out of that situation. And now you're not driven to that plan because you haven't considered it. You you feel empowered to actually make the choice that you want to make. Mm-hmm. And the risk feels, feels better. So even just what's coming to mind for me is even just considering like, okay, let's say we do get divorced because I, I have had clients that are like, no, that's too scary. I wouldn't survive. And so it keeps them from really considering all of their options and living authentically. Mm-hmm. And so what will happen so often is I'll say, okay, let's consider that you do. You end up divorced. You guys cannot reconcile your differences. You end up divorced. What would you do to make sure that your kids are healthy? How could you and your spouse work together to make sure that your kids are emotionally healthy, that they're financially provided for? Like, how do we how do we figure this out? And once that's off the table so often... So often my clients are like, actually, we were able to talk through this Mm -hmm. and we're not going there. We're going to figure this out. Neither of us wants that. But because they weren't talking about it, it was this huge looming fear between the two of them. And it was keeping them from talking about really important things that could keep them together. Right. Realizing that divorce was an option. It was something that they could consider and that they could survive suddenly made it where they were able to actually find a solution that they did want. Yeah. Well, and it, and it, and it reminds me of the, the cycle that we were looking at last time. And one of the, you know, the underneath that, that cycle uh, is that heart, mm-hmm. right? Where the vulnerable primary emotions are. And, and notice one of those vulnerable emotions that is hard to talk about is fear, mm-hmm. right? Our fears 
uh, are almost always going to be hard to talk about. It's, it, it's scary to talk about fear, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? I guess that's the irony is that it's, it's hard to talk about those things. And yet that's how we adapt and change, uh, over, over time, mm -hmm. right? Especially when we consider the fact that we all get married three different times in our life. And sometimes it's to the same person, right? Is mm -hmm. that in order to change together, we have to be able to talk about those fears and those worries and those concerns freely to make it less likely for them to happen. Yeah. You know, otherwise it becomes kind of this self-fulfilling prophecy. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think it's what we, what we resist persists mm, is, is yeah. the, the saying that you were talking about earlier. Yeah. And do you mind if I talk about like when we first transitioned out of the church, the scary conversation we had to have about our marriage? Yeah. Well, I mean, it was multiple conversations. Yeah. It wasn't just one. Right. I but mean, the first one for me was like the very scariest. Like mm -hmm. I can remember just the primal fear. Mm -hmm. Are you cool with me talking yeah, about of it? Of course. So I think I talked about this a little bit in episode one, but I talked about how Mormonism was the bag that carried all of my identity. It was what defined what kind of mother I was, what kind of wife I was, who I selected to marry, where I went to college, what major I chose, what kind of business I worked, how I parented my kids. It, it defined everything. And I think many of you who are listening to this, you were probably given guidance on who to marry, who to date, who are you looking for. And I mean, in Mormonism, we, we often talk about a checklist because we're usually like 12 or 13 years old when they have us make this checklist of this like ideal spouse that we want. And you're looking for a person that checks off all the boxes. In Mormonism, it's I'm, you know, I'm looking for a worthy priesthood holder. So I'm looking for someone who's active in the church and male, basically. I'm looking for someone who served an honorable mission. So someone who went on a mission for two years and came back without getting kicked out or leaving early. I'm looking for someone who would be a good father. I'm looking for someone who would be a good provider, like all of these things. But you never really, there's never <laughs> checkboxes for personality or compatibility or any of those things. It's all about belief in the church. It's all about their, their the way that they're serving in the church and how they provide and fit, you know, gender norms. And I remember when we first left having to sit and have that conversation. It was one of the first pieces of my identity that we picked up. We sat down and I said, would you still want to be married to me? Mm -hmm. And do I still want to be married to you? In so many ways, our marriage choice felt directed by the church. Mm -hmm. And we had to sit and honestly consider, is it what we would cho choose for ourselves now? Now making choices from our authentic self, is this what I want? Is this relationship fulfilling? You know, and and for some people, the answer is going to be a resounding yes. Like, I love you. I am happy with you. I'm actually, the thing that scares me the most is losing you. And for other people, the answer that comes up might be, I'm not happy here. We don't feel like a good fit. We haven't felt like a good fit for years. We got married because we wanted to have sex. And once we did that, all the chemistry kind of left. And it's important to have those conversations as scary as they are and to really listen to the honest answers because it's when we're honest with ourselves that we can start to solve the problem. As long as we're lying to ourselves, as long as we have blinders on, we can't get to the heart of the problem. We can't feel confident with our choices. And so often we feel handcuffed still by a church that we've left 
or by a belief system that we've left because we feel like they made us make choices that we don't like in our present life and we're stuck with them. And the reality is we aren't stuck. We just have to be honest with ourselves and and be willing to face that fear and look at those things open-mindedly. Yeah. And, and forgive our older self for not knowing what we didn't know. Yep. You don't know what you don't know. You're right. That was one of many scary conversations. I just remember that first one. Just, do you still want to be married to me? <laughs> and just being like, please say yes. Please say yes. So. Well, and it's, I mean, there's so much that you don't know as you're going through a transition like that. And that's just that in and of itself is scary. Yep. Because you don't know what the future holds. You don't know. I mean, like when I think about having hard talks, you know, the image that comes to mind is I was standing in the kitchen by the island and <sighs> you're in the other room. And, and I kind of just had this sad feeling envelop me. And I kind of just had this realization that our oldest isn't going to get the priesthood. Our youngest isn't going to get baptized. They're not going to go on missions not going to get married in the temple, you know, just all of those milestones and markers that we as Mormons had been raised to look forward to and to anticipate and to celebrate. And, and it was just this immensely sad feeling that just kind of washed over me. And I shared that with you, you started crying and I crumpled to the floor and yeah. cried. And it was just like, I don't know. It was just, I guess it was just, I remember it wasn't a question of, gosh, should we stay and keep doing these things for the kids? It was like, we're not staying and they're not going to do these things. And it was interesting because obviously we were making that decision not to stay because we didn't find it to be healthy. And, and in fact, we found it to be toxic, but you're still grieving. Yeah. You're still grieving because that's what you've been taught to believe and to look forward to and, and to anticipate. And so until you find what that looks like moving forward for you, until you find a substitute or just redefining what that future looks like, it's it's scary and it's it's immensely saddening just because you don't know any different. Yeah. Well, and so often too, I find that our leaving is a paradox. It's not like it's all good that we're leaving or it's all bad. No. There's loss involved sure. as well as a, a certain freedom that's involved as well. I, I often <laughs> liken my exit to that scene in Tangled where she's like, best day ever. And she's swinging by her hair from the tree. Yeah. And then she's rolling in the grass. I'm the worst daughter. What have I done? And then she's like, I love my life. And she's running in the field. And then she's like, my mom's going to kill me. This would just absolutely tear her up. And it's, um, you know, she's like, I'm a liar and I'm a bad person. And that's so much what it's like to leave because on the one hand, it feels so good to feel free to make choices for yourself and so good to be able to make decisions for yourself and break free from this belief set that feels so restrictive. And yet on the other hand, there's all these beliefs about, you know, what that means about you as a person, but not just that there's actually things about the religion that you, you loved things that that were good. I had to grieve the community. I loved being a part of a community that felt like extended family in some ways. I loved road shows growing up and I loved singing music, especially like in the tabernacle or in some of the choirs. Like I loved I had beautiful memories of singing some of the music and harmonizing and just 
those elevated feelings that we called the Holy Ghost, I, you know, these were all moments that felt beautiful and I had to grieve that those would never happen again. And so I think that's what was going on as we were grieving for our kids that they wouldn't, you know, get married in the castle, like the, in the temple that looked like an an ice castle and Mm -hmm. they wouldn't go on a mission and have the whole family celebrate them and write to them for two years. And it just, we think that they wouldn't have some of the experiences that maybe were meaningful and, and beautiful for us, but also part of the system of keeping us in line and keeping us following the rules of the religion. So, yeah, because it was both. And that's crazy is that that's, I think what's the most crazy is life is so often both. It's good and bad. There's it's yeah. bitter and sweet. Right. Right. Yeah, it, it is. It's always both. But again, we're, we're often in that binary mindset of, you know, good and bad and, positive and negative and and we want to gravitate towards only the positive and good mm-hmm. and think we can somehow ignore or bury the the negative and and it's often two sides of the same coin yeah yeah i like how you put that well and 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 notice as we're talking about this there's i think there's another element that it's important to emphasize is how are we able to talk about this? How are we, how were we able to talk about staying married or did you want to have kids or not? Or, um, you know, some of these very sensitive topics, I think it, it boils down to that curiosity and that non-judgment that I think we, we've touched on before. We have to be, and in fact, looking at that, that cycle, that, that diagram of the cycle again, that's the only way we can get down to that heart below the, the infinity symbol. The only way we can get down there is from that curiosity, non-judgment place Mm -hmm. that we can explore that. You know, if, if, if you had said something that, that I don't agree with, that I, I find to be wrong or offensive or whatever, the challenge for me is to to get curious with that and go, well, help me understand that, mm-hmm. right? Um, that's not how I believe. That's not how I see this, but clearly you do. So help me understand. Help me understand. What, what do you mean when you say that? You know, I, I remember an argument we were having on the sand dunes uh, a few years ago, we were hiking on the sand dunes and we were in the midst of some marital struggles of our own. And, and in that moment, I, I, I just kind of said out of frustration or whatever. And I'm just like, Ugh, I'm done. Do you remember what you asked me? I don't remember. <laughs> I remember the moment. I remember you saying, I'm done. Yeah. You throat punched me. And then, no, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, no, 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 you, you, well, where do you imagine your mind was like, like, cause we were in that cycle right then you were feeling scared and I say, I'm done. Where does your mind go? Well, my big issue is abandonment. And so probably like I was worried, like probably went immediately to you being done with the marriage. I, I would imagine your next question was, what do you mean? Mm. Right. And, 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 and I can't remember what you said after this said after that, but you may have asked, what do you mean by that? You know, maybe you asked, are you done with the marriage or, and, and I had to clarify, I'm, I'm done 
in this moment with this argument, with this fight, with the topic, whatever we were discussing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But again, that's, that's, that's that's another example of how quickly we can go into that cycle, Mm -hmm. right? Because that fear, in other words, one way to look at, you know, because when we were talking about that cycle last time, we were talking about those reactive feelings that we feel when we're up in the cycle and then those vulnerable primary emotions and and needs that we're feeling below. One way to look at that is is if you picture like a an iceberg, you know, yeah. uh, you know, and if you picture an iceberg, sometimes you'll see a small portion of it above the, the, the water line, and then you'll see this huge, massive chunk below it. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think that's always a good visual for how our emotions are organized. You know, the reactive secondary emotions are up there on the top. Mm-hmm. Those are the visible ones, the easier ones to see the anger, the frustration, the reactivity, the defensiveness. But what's harder to see is what's underneath that, mm-hmm. the fear, the pain, the loneliness, the loneliness, the, the needs to, 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 to belong and to matter. Yeah. And so, and so when it comes to this topic, particularly with, you know, a mixed faith marriage or, or, or a couple who are going through, you know, faith transitional uh, difficulties, these are some of the things that, that we're probably feeling. Yeah. Right. The, what does my change in this belief mean? How is my spouse going to view this? How is he or she going to react when they find out? And and ultimately, some of our deepest needs that we have as human beings are just to be accepted, to be loved unconditionally, to be wanted, to be needed. Mm-hmm. The last thing we want, you know, some of our greatest fears are to disappoint our spouse, to feel like a monster, to feel like a bad guy or a bad woman, mm-hmm. uh, that we're somehow failing in our, our role as a spouse or as a parent. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so those fears often feed into a lot of the, the arguments and disagreements that, we, uh, that people experience going through something like this. That makes so much sense to me. Yeah. Because those are very vulnerable feelings. Yeah. yeah. And they're scary to voice. Mm-hmm. Because we're so afraid that someone will validate our fears and and prove us right, that we aren't safe. So, no, this has been such a good discussion and so many good things have come out of this conversation. And um, I hope that you guys found this helpful. If these last two episodes that Kevin and I have done have been really helpful, if you've gotten a lot from these conversations and you're wanting more Kevin and I are really excited to let you know that we are teaming up together to bring you a two-hour workshop on February 21st, so the Sunday after Valentine's Day, especially if you are in a mixed-faith marriage or if you are in a marriage where both of you have transitioned out and you're trying to resolve conflict as far as where do we go from here, how do we create a new family value system. Um, What do we believe now? If you're trying to work through those difficult questions that Kevin and I were talking about, about what does this mean for our marriage? What does this mean for our parenting? All of those questions, please join us on the 21st for the workshop. That link is going to be in the show notes. The cost of the workshop is $55, and there is going to be a cap at 20 people. So, That way we can really make sure that we're able to answer questions and work through specific issues and get you the help that you need. 
We have even more resources over on my Facebook page. We're having conversations. I'm having Kevin on for a couple of live question and answers. We're really digging deep into conflict, into relationships. We'll be going into ways to start building better communication and more trust in future episodes. I'd love to have you join us over there on the Facebook page. In the meantime, feel free to follow us on social media or on Kevin's website, on his blog. And thank you for joining us today. We look forward to interacting with you in all of these different places and getting you the support you need to get the relationships that you deserve. Thanks for joining us today and we'll see you next week.